This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. We're preaching from Luke chapter 23, but we have taken time to develop this series on the seven sayings of the cross. And as I have already mentioned, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he spoke seven times. And we are taking these sayings one Sunday at a time. Last Sunday, we began the series with the first time Jesus spoke, and they were the words of forgiveness. This morning, we talk about the words of salvation. And it's my goal and desire this morning that I would teach you something about these particular words that perhaps you've never noticed before or never have been introduced before because I'm going to go into some rather deep subjects of these particular words that Jesus spoke and it might come at you for the very first time. Maybe today I will clarify something for you and it's my goal and desire that most of all, if you don't know what we're talking about, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there's no better time than to trust Him today. The Word says today is the day of salvation. And the Word also says this, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You might be here today and you might be saying, Well, I'm not ready to do this yet. But when I have lived life to its fullest and I have got my ducks in the row, I've dotted my eyes across my T's. Somebody said not too long ago, when I'm at death's door, I'll give my life to Christ. The problem with that, sir, or the problem with that, ma'am, is that no one in this building has the promise to see the sunset tonight. So I would not put off the day of salvation for another opportunity. This is the best opportunity you have in your life right now if you've never given your heart to Christ. I want us now to look at these scriptures, and we're going to begin this morning because there are a lot. You have a bulletin. You can see how fast and diligently I must work through uh, today's message. But beginning in Luke chapter 23, I want us to focus first of all on verse number 39, and I'm going to read down through verse 43. And the scripture says, if you have a King James Bible, and one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, and this is the second time he spoke while hanging on the cross. Look at this. Verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me 
in paradise. There's a lot to be seen in that one verse. And this morning, I hope and pray that I can share with you some things from the Word of God that you've never thought about, never seen, or maybe that you have clarified for you. Now, when it comes to the cross, it doesn't matter how much we teach about it, how much we preach about it, how much we have studied about it, or how many times we have heard the story, or how many times we have shared the story, I don't believe it will ever be within our reach to adequately describe the agony of the cross, the agony of Calvary. We know that the death of Christ was intensified with shame. And according to the Word of God, the Word teaches us that He was stripped naked hanging on the cross before men. So you cannot amiss the fact that it was filled with ridicule and public condemnation. While hanging on the cross, Jesus was experiencing excruciating suffering. I think far beyond the surface knowledge of what you have in your heart or mind about the cross, I'm not going to speak in much detail this morning about the cat of nine tails, which had nine leather strands bones and chip, all kinds of sharp objects at the end in which they whipped the flesh off of his back. But I want you to see another verse. And I want you to put what you know about that exercise, what they did to him with that whip. But there's another verse in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number 6, and this might be something you're not familiar with. Because while he was experiencing all of these horrific things, being crucified, Isaiah the prophet, now he wrote these words 750 years before Jesus was born. This is a prophecy of what was going to happen to Jesus while he was on the cross. And the prophet Isaiah said, now this is Jesus, is what Isaiah is prophesying Jesus would say or feel or experience on the cross. He said, I gave my back to the smiters. We've talked about that. They whipped the flesh off of his back to the point where his vital organs were exposed. But then he says, and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. Are you familiar with the fact that while everything else Jesus was experiencing, they literally took their hands and they began to pull his beard out of his face. And then he said, I hid not my face for shame and spitting. So while they were crucifying him, literally filleting his body open with that cat of nine tails, pulling, plucking his beard from his face, the word says they also spit upon him. And so the agony of the cross, there's a, there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of suffering. In addition to that, we're familiar with the crown of thorns. We're familiar with the fact that he was carrying the cross on his body before he actually got to Golgotha. They had nailed his hands. They had nailed his feet. When they got him secure on the cross... They raised it and they jarred it into a hole. You can imagine the agony of the weight pulling on his hands. 
All of this was compassed with barbaric brutality. Now, let me remind you, the first time he spoke from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is not only an important part of salvation, but it affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with others. I don't have time this morning to rehearse everything we talked about, the components of this thing called forgiveness, but I assure you it's of how value and priority in our life. The second time he speaks, this was in direct response to this dying thief that was on the cross. And in his dying breath, this thief who was being crucified beside Christ, he opened his heart to him. And it's important for us to take notice that when this thief made this request to Jesus hanging on the cross, he did not turn to Jesus and say, I heard you can do all kinds of miracles and if, if you can perform one for me right now, figure out a way to get me down. He didn't say that. He didn't turn to Jesus and say, I heard you are pretty good with helping the poor. I'm dying. Would you perform a miracle and make sure that my family that I leave behind has all the provisions that they need? He didn't turn to Jesus and say, if it's possible, relieve me from all of the pain and agony that I'm experiencing. He didn't turn to Jesus and say, if it's possible, figure out a way to make these guys give me another trial and retry me for these crimes that I've committed. He didn't turn and ask Jesus for anything spectacular. He turned to the Lord while he was hanging on the cross, dying and condemned as well. And he simply said, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. I think probably as Rhea was singing so well this morning about the cross and Teresa and the congregational singing all blended and put together, I think perhaps this repentant thief could really say at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart was rolled away. I think that was the essence of what he was saying. And I think it's important for us to know, listen carefully, that it was no accident that Jesus was being crucified between two thieves. This is important. It wasn't an accident because in spite of everything that was going on, the brutality that Jesus was experiencing while on the cross, the crowd that was mocking him, people that were spitting on him, the Roman soldiers who had whipped him and put the crown of thorns on his head. Listen, when all of that was going on simultaneously, it was unbelievably barbaric. But the thing that I want you to know about all of these happenings, while all of that was going on on this earth, God in heaven was on his throne and he was carefully presiding over every single event that was going on on the earth. Everything that they were doing to Jesus, God was on the throne watching every event as they were occurring. 
And I want you to understand this from eternity past. God had decided when the crucifixion would take place. After the 4,000 years of the Old Testament had gone by, Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea. He began his public ministry when he was 30 years old. And now he was 33 and a half years old. God had determined when Jesus would die. And that would be at this age of 33 and a half years old. God not only determined when, now you have to understand this, while they're doing all of these wicked things to the Lord, while he was on the cross, God was in perfect control of what was happening. He decided when. God not only decided when, but he decided where. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 12, the word says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus was not crucified where some believe to be the church of the Holy Sepulchre because that, that is located inside of the gates, the walls of Jerusalem. And you can clearly see here in the pages of Scripture, Jesus was not crucified inside the gate, but the word says outside the gate. So God, listen, this is, this is important. God had fundamentally declared when Jesus would be crucified and where he would be crucified. But not only that, the word says that God presided over these events on how he was going to be crucified extremely in a barbaric way. And we've read some of those scriptures. Then God also had predetermined with whom he would be crucified. And we're reading this morning between two thieves. So the thing that I want you to understand this morning is this, that God, none of these events took him by surprise. None of these events were by accident. When Pilate turned Jesus over to the Jews and they placed him between these two common criminals, they were putting into execution the eternal degree of God and fulfilling the prophetic word. This was exactly the way that God wanted it to be. Again, I remind you of the words of the prophet Isaiah. Don't forget this. It's a prophecy 750 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 12, the prophet said, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide it or divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered. Look at this. God had predetermined with whom he would be crucified. He was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, Jesus now being crucified between these two thieves, it was not a coincidence. Someone may ask, and I have been asked this question many times as a pastor, why would God permit, if God was in control, why would God permit it? Why would God allow this type of death for Jesus? I mean, pastor, the shame was enough. The suffering was enough. Why such disgrace? And I know, listen carefully, I know that there are many people in the world who are considered to be lost and who are considered to be saved 
who ask many questions about God every single day. And people ask me this often. Pastor, I don't understand God. How can he be a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of grace and a God of mercy? How can he be a God of all of these things and allow such crimes that take place on this earth? And if he is in control, why does he allow so much hate to filterate the world and violence and Why does he allow nature to be so evil and wreak havoc in so many people's lives with tornadoes and hurricanes, tsunamis? If he is a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion, why are there so many poor people in the world, so many people going through uh, destitution and, and not having the provisions that they need? And if God is a God of grace and love and compassion and mercy, why does he allow even Christians to be persecuted in various parts of the world? Why does God allow all of these terrible things? Maybe you yourself have asked that question before. Maybe somebody's asked you that question before. But the truth of the matter is this. We will never, ever be able to understand God from a human perspective with our simple, finite minds. We just cannot do it. I mean, when you think about it, if God is in control, why why would he choose? Why would he allow Jesus to be born in a manger and not at Ivory Palace somewhere? Why would he allow Judas to betray him? Why would he allow Peter to deny him? All of these questions we have about God. But there's a verse of scripture, I think, that might help you with not being able to understand him. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. And so here is the thing that we need to constantly remember. And you may be going through something today that has you questioning God because of your circumstances. And there's maybe perhaps so much confusion going on in your life right now. Things may seem to be turned upside down. And, and you don't understand why it's happening or why this God of grace, love, compassion, and mercy would sit on his throne being in charge and allow these things to happen in your life. Here's the thing that I want you to remember, and that is this. God never does anything without a reason. He never acts arbitrarily. And we need to rest in the fact that God, no matter what, he is always in control. Now, if I had to speculate this morning the reasons why God would allow Jesus to be crucified in such a horrible way, but especially between two common thieves, murderers, maybe it could have been for God, number one, to demonstrate the unfathomable depths of shame into which Jesus had to descend. Think about this just for a moment. In his birth, he did trade an ivory palace for a stable. He traded a throne for a manger. He traded his angels for shepherds. He traded cherubims for his disciples. And now in his death, according to the word of God, he's numbered with the refuse and the scum of the earth. And this is a picture of his coming into poverty as he associated himself with the human race. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9, the word says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Maybe God chose to put Jesus between two thieves because it was a way for him to show us a picture of the position that Jesus was now occupying as our vicarious substitute. The thing is this, I want you to understand that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was taking my place. And he was taking your place. He was our vicarious substitute. There's an old song that says, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. And he took your place too. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe he allowed Jesus to be crucified between two thieves to show us that every man, no matter who it is, and no matter what we have done, every one of us, listen carefully, please don't leave here today without understanding this. Every single one of us, it makes no difference who we are, where we have come from, what our backgrounds may be. Every single one of us has an equal opportunity to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. One thief rejected him. The other thief right beside him received him. And both of these men were equally near. I mean, both of them saw and heard Jesus speak. Both were wicked men. They were both thieves. They were both worthy of death. They were both suffering. They were both dying. And both of these thieves urgently needed forgiveness and salvation. But here's the big difference between the two of them. One man died in his sins, and the other man died with his faith in Christ. I wonder if we realize that, that this is the exact same thing that's going on in the world every day. People are in the same condition. I mean, this auditorium is nearly filled to capacity. And listen, I don't know what you're preferences are in religion, your ideologies, your faiths, your beliefs, I don't know. But all of us are in the same boat today. We're in the same circumstance. All of us have similar like same troubles. We're all headed for an eternity, a devil's hell or heaven. Listen, some people come to church, stand and sing and shout and praise God, hear the same message, sitting in the same pews, have access to the same Holy Spirit, and yet some leave blind and on their way to hell, the others may leave forgiven and on their way to heaven. But the undisputable truth is that every single person here today and watching by internet, sitting in the lobby, listen carefully, all of us have the same opportunity to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. It's the same way today. Thank God the gospel is for all of us. He did not shut any of us out. Grace is free to all, anybody who will accept it. It doesn't cost money. It doesn't require work. There are no age limits on it. There's no waiting period. It is the gift of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. What was his gift? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what a beautiful picture here of God's grace we see in the salvation of this dying thief. The thief turned to Jesus when it appeared that Jesus couldn't even save himself, much less anybody else. He turns to the Lord Jesus I mean, when it seemed as though that the Jews had finally prevailed, he turned to Jesus when his disciples had forsaken him. He turned to Jesus when public opinion was unanimously against the Lord. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Look, the Bible doesn't record anybody standing at the foot of the cross with their arms raised up to Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Nobody was down there witnessing. Nobody was down there preaching a sermon. Somewhere along the line in the distance, there was a Roman centurion that looked up and said, man, truly, this has to be the Son of God. Yet this dying thief looked beyond all the doubt with unquestionable faith. Now, what are the lessons we learned from this today? Number one, if you're following along in your bulletin, he represents us as sinners. Now, now please listen to this. A lot of people, when talking about the thieves, the two thieves, they've tried to portray this guy as the good thief, the one who turned to the Lord, the one that was better than the other. But we need to remember something. Prior to this confession, this man was the same in heart as the one who rejected the Lord. I want you to see this in Matthew 27, verse number 38. And I want to read through verse number 34. Look at this. Matthew 27, 31 through 38. And the Bible says this. And when they were come to the place talking about the two thieves. And when they were come, well, let's, let's look at verse 37. And yet set up over his head an accusation written, this is the Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then there were two, verse 37, and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved himself, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in verse number 44, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now, for a period of time, the thief who repented was no different than the one who was cursing and blaspheming. Because for a moment, he took part also in this rejection. But his eyes were slowly being opened. 
It's a sad truth, friend, but I'll tell you this. There are many people still walking this earth that daily reject Jesus as the Son of God. They reject him as the Savior of the world. Maybe you know somebody like that. I think it's a tragic thing to become aware of your spiritual needs and refuse to open your heart to the Lord calling out. Number two, look at it if you're following in the bulletin. Another lesson we learned from this thief is that man has to come to the end of his self before he can be saved. Man has to come to the end of his self before he can be saved. To see ourselves as lost sinners, because a person cannot be saved until he sees himself that way. We have to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. And this repentant thief saw this. In Romans 5, 6, Paul writes it like this, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for us. And Paul also said in Titus 3, 5, Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Before anybody can be saved, we have to realize that only Jesus can save them. And so this is what the conversion of the thief shows us. I mean, what could, what could this man do to save himself? Think about that. He couldn't start reading his Bible every day. He couldn't start walking the straight and narrow. He couldn't start tithing. He couldn't begin to turn over a new leaf. This man was dying. He could not do one single thing to save himself. Nothing. He realized that only Jesus, in this moment of death and life, only Jesus could bring him hope. Only Jesus could save him. And this teaches us that without Christ, we're helpless and hopeless. Number three, quickly. Another lesson is this thief teaches us that we do not have to be baptized to go to heaven. And that might be something that some of you have been confused with all of your life. You see, listen, baptism comes after salvation, not before salvation. That's why it's a gross error and so misleading to put your faith in baptism. You see, you have to know that you're lost. You have to know that Christ died for you. You have to know what he's dying for. You have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit for your sins. A baby cannot do that. Water baptism does not save a person for eternity. It's the blood of Jesus. And you have to be old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. You have to be knowledgeable about your accountability. You have to know what Jesus did for you and you put your faith in what he did for you at the cross, not a water baptism. And that's what this thief teaches us. I mean, listen, if you had to be baptized to go to heaven, then this man went to hell. He was on the cross. Yet Jesus spoke to him and said, today, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, something special about that, Jesus didn't say, this day thou shalt be in paradise. He said, this, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's important. I want you to understand something. The very moment that a believer closes their eyes in death, instantly, they are in the presence of God. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, number, number four, and I want to explain something to you here. I'll need a few extra minutes to do this, but you'll miss a blessing if you don't follow this carefully because I want to give to you the explanation of paradise. The explanation of paradise. I want to say a couple of things about this. 
Just for a few moments. Number, number one, where was it? Number two, where is it? And number three, what is it? In John 1, or John 21, verse 25, get these scriptures on the screen for them back there, if you will, please. John 21, verse 25, and there also were also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And the point being here is this, that there are many things according to the scriptures that happened that we simply do not know. I understand it creates a lot of questions, but we do not know, and we cannot answer them definitively. But what I want to share with you now, I believe has some clarity, yet some speculation. We know that paradise is that other name for the place before the cross that was called Abraham's bosom. When Jesus died on the cross, I believe the first thing that he did the scripture says, and he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Father, I commit my spirit unto you. And the word says when he said that, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And I believe the first thing he did when he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, I believe that he presented the sacrificial blood that he had shed on the mercy seat of heaven. There's a scripture of why I believe that. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was necessary, therefore necessary, that the pattern of things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into that holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven, look at that, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So I believe that when Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost, while they were taking his mortal body, earthly body, from the cross, getting ready to put it in the tomb, his, what he did was he ascended back in spirit and presented the blood on the mercy seat of heaven. Then I believe, and this is where it's confusing, so stay with me real quick. Then I believe he descended into the lower parts of the earth for a specific reason. In Ephesians 4, 9, and 10, now that he ascended, which means going up, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is where paradise was before the cross. Before the cross, paradise and heaven, listen carefully, were not the same place. When Jesus died, his body was placed in the grave for three days. 
But in spirit, he presented the blood to God the Father on the mercy seat in heaven. That was his first assignment. Then, according to what I believe the scriptures say, he descended into Hades, which was divided into two parts. There was the torment side, and then there was the comforting side. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 26, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, look at this carefully, into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And besides all of this, this is very important, don't lose me here, hell is not a figment of imagination. Hell is not something that is a literal burning hell on this earth, even though people act like it and, and you can define it as that in so many ways. Listen, there is a real literal burning hell and there is a real place called heaven. Now look at this. And thou being tormented, verse 26. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix so that which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from, from thence. Now, so listen. Before the cross, Hades was divided into two parts. It was a comforting side, it was a tormenting side and a comforting side. When the rich man died, he's having a conversation with Abraham. He's over here in the tormenting side. He's speaking which he could see, he could touch, he could taste, he could feel. He had all of his senses, he had all of his faculties. He's speaking to Abraham over here and he's saying, Abraham, would you please warn my brothers? Would you please send Lazarus that he may just dip his finger in water, let it drip on my tongue? Abraham is over here in the comforting sign, which he could see here. He said, listen, remember in your lifetime, you had an opportunity to do things different, but you chose not to. And he said, it's too late for you. And even if it was possible for me to talk to Lazarus on your behalf, it's impossible because he cannot get to you because of this great gulf fix between the two of us. Hades had a tormenting side and a comforting side. Those that did not believe, they, the unrighteous went to the tormenting side and those counted as righteous went to the comforting side, which was Abraham's bosom. Now this is very important because what these people in Abraham's bosom, what they were waiting for was the atonement for sin to be made. You see, when the righteous or those who believed died before the cross, this is very important. They went to Abraham's bosom waiting for the blood of Jesus 
to be shed that would make atonement for them to be acceptable in heaven in the presence of God. They could not get to heaven where God was without the blood any more than you and I can get to heaven without the blood. We all, if we're going to heaven, we've got to go through the blood. At this point, the blood had not been shed. So the righteous, the believers, went to Abraham's bosom, waiting for Jesus to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to apply the blood to the mercy seat. Because in order to get to heaven, we've got to be covered by the blood. Now, when Jesus died on the cross and gave up the ghost, he presented the blood to the Father, but then he descended down into Abraham's bosom. He went to the comforting side after his death to reveal to those who were in Abraham's bosom that he had just died, that he shed the blood, and that the debt for sin had been paid. He went to tell them that the blood was on the mercy seat. He told them, listen now, I've presented the blood to the Father, and now because of that, I have conquered the devil, held death in the grave. They have been defeated. And Jesus is saying, now I have come to set you free. Now I've come to take you to the Father. Now imagine those on the tormenting side, watching and listening to this declaration of Jesus. Hey, I've come to set these captives free. Now remember at that time when Jesus took those who were believers, the righteous, when he went down to the comforting side and took all of those believing saints, those who were counted for righteous to heaven, the word says that there was a great vacuum. He emptied out this thing. He emptied out this comforting side. And because of that, when he did, the word said, hell enlarged itself. There was, listen now, don't lose this, the comforting side for the righteous. There was the tormenting side for the unrighteous. When the righteous were taken out, the Bible says hell enlarged itself. In Isaiah 5, 14, therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and that he rejoices shall descend into it. Hell was not created for men. It was created for the devil and his angels. But because men reject Jesus as their savior, friend, that's where a human soul, an eternal soul goes without Jesus. Now, the Bible says that Jesus led the captive free and he gave gifts to men according to the word. In Ephesians chapter four, verse number eight, wherefore he saith when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, I believe then he delivered those multitudes to the safety of the Father. His spirit, listen, after he accomplished those missions, he presented the blood on the mercy seat. He went down and gave a message to those who were waiting for the blood to be shed. He led those spirits back to the Father, and then, I believe, his spirit returned back to the tomb in order that the Father could gloriously, bodily resurrect him from the dead. And that's exactly what God did do. He raised him from the dead. 
And as Acts 10.40 says, Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly. But in Matthew 27.51, the Bible says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. The next thing, listen now, he came out of the grave and he had a conversation with Mary. In John 20, 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now the Greek word here for touch, this is important, is a word called haptomai. And it means to, to cling to and it wasn't just a physical touch. When Jesus was saying, don't touch me, he wasn't just saying, "You don't do this, Mary. But he was talking about lingering, wrapping him up and holding him and, and lingering. As you remember, because he gave an invitation to Thomas to touch him. Jesus wanted Mary to know that she couldn't linger there, but she had to go tell others that he had risen. But now paradise is not the lower parts of the earth. It is now in the third heaven. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 and through 4. He said, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one, look at this, caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth how, that he was caught up into paradise. Paradise is now not in the lower parts. Caught up, look at that, caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for man to utter. Now, this morning, as we come to a close, and I want to ask our musicians to come forward, listen to this. And there might be somebody out there that knows what I'm talking about. You've been touched and you've been set free. Jesus has washed your sins away. You know that your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. And not because of something you've done, but because of what Jesus, God's son, has done. You know that. There's some in here today that has that confidence. And if you know for sure that Jesus is truly the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and if you know for sure that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life, and you know for sure that Jesus is the only way, you don't have to die and go to heaven because of Jesus. He shed his blood, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his blood. You know that you're born again. I, I want to just ask somebody in here today to get your praise on because listen, heaven is not just a place. It's the land of the living. There's no more dying. There's no more pain. There's no more goodbye. There's no more broken homes. There's no more sorrow. No more sickness, no more trials, no more difficulties, no more separation, no more chemo, no more uh, radiation, no more CAT scans, no more physical therapies. Listen, there's no bypass surgeries or sugar diabetes, no more sin, no more devil. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This thief acknowledged Jesus as Lord. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, he not only acknowledged him as Lord, but he acknowledged him as a king. Eternity is real. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, 
Wash all my sins away. The last lesson is this. It's never too late to be saved. God has given every person in here today another opportunity. That opportunity, the last one, may be yours right now. You see, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you die that way, friend, there's no turning back. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.